one day three ministers were meeting in uh, one of the guy's churches. They're talking about prayer, talking about the most appropriate and most effective postures for prayer. You know, things like kneeling or having your hands folded or maybe standing up with your hands raised to God. And as we were talking, there was a telephone repairman working off on the side here on the church's phone system, kind of in the background here, but obviously privy to their conversation. Well, one minister spoke up and he says, you know, I think that the key to prayer is in the hands. Uh, he says, I always hold my hands together and I kind of point them upwards as an act of, as a, a symbol of, of uh, worship to God. And the second one suggested that the only real way to pray, the best prayer, was conducted on your knees. And the third suggested, no, you both have it wrong. He says, the only position worth its salt is to pray stretched out on the floor with your face to the ground before God. Well, by this time, the telephone man just couldn't stay out of the conversation any longer. He interjected, he says, you've got your own opinions and that's okay. But he says, I've always found that the most powerful prayer ever made was while I was dangling upside down from my, by my heels from a telephone pole about 40 feet off the ground. And uh, this was obviously a prayer of desperation, a very, very effective prayer, obviously, because he got away from that situation safely. Last week, we began looking into the story of Jonah. We discovered that he also has time for prayer, very significant need for prayer. And I think this prayer of desperation was also the most sincere, the most powerful prayer he probably ever prayed. Now, you remember, we saw that God came to Jonah, and God said to Jonah, you need to go to the Assyrians, and you need to pray that I'm going to judge them, that I'm going to bring judgment upon the city, and they need to respond, they need to repent. Well, the problem for Jonah was that he didn't want them to repent. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want God to be able to warn them through his preaching, and then people to respond to God, and God would deliver them from that. In fact, he wanted them to be punished. And so he ran away. He ran away from God as far as he possibly could. His, his design was to go the opposite direction as far as he knew to go. And at the end of Jonah chapter 1, we read that the sailors of the merchant ship that he was riding on actually throw him bodily out of the ship into the sea because that's what Jonah says. The only way you're going to stop this storm is for you to throw me into the sea. And so they did with prayers that God would forgive them for that. If that wasn't bad enough to be thrown into the sea, he is very quickly swallowed by this giant fish. Maybe it looked kind of like this one that the artist drew. Not anything we've maybe seen before, but because God created a special fish, this fish came and swallowed him whole. As Jonah went into the sea and then into the belly of that great fish, he prayed what I call a prayer of desperation. Now, how many of you have ever prayed a prayer of desperation? Now, I figured a few hands would go for that one. A prayer of desperation. Oh, man, Lord, what else? What can I do? What is next? I am desperate here. And the only thing you need to do is pray. That is the kind of prayer Jonah is offering here. So let's start reading with the last verse of chapter 1, Jonah 1, 17, and go in through chapter 2. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, 
In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, with sacrifice to you, and what I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. <laughs> wow! That, that's some pretty amazing stuff. Now I want to call this sermon today, When Prayer is All You Have, because sometimes you reach a moment like this moment in Jonah's life when you know nothing else to do. Nothing else could, could save you. Nothing else could step in and deliver you but God himself. And so you pray. Now, some people think that Jonah didn't start praying until he was inside the belly of the fish, but I am pretty sure he prayed before that. I'm pretty sure he prayed as he was thrown into the sea. And I'm pretty sure he was praying when he saw this giant fish coming after him. Maybe he's actually sinking down into the waters. Maybe he sees through the ocean this huge object coming toward him and then opening his mouth. I'm very sure he was praying as he entered that fish, aren't you? Crisis prayers. You ever prayed one? Some of you said, I have. I've prayed when I was desperate. I've prayed when I didn't know what else to do. I've prayed when I hit the wall in my life. Um, have you ever been trapped between a rock and a hard place, people say? And you prayed to God out of desperation from well, inside that hard place, in that crisis. Have you ever felt like you couldn't go on and prayer was all you had? This is where Jonah is at this moment in his life. He has disobeyed God. He's run from God. He's, he's uh, uh, you know, thumbed his nose at God. And now God's getting his attention. And God is driving home what Jonah has done. And all he can do is pray. Well, there's a lot to learn about prayer here. And I want to share four things with you that may be helpful to you as well when you reach a point like this in your life. The most obvious lesson is the first one. Sometimes the crisis is exactly what we needed. It's, it's not fun to go through a crisis. It's not, not uh, fun to be swallowed by a giant fish or to go through a financial disaster or maybe the loss of a job or maybe a family member or something else that is just terrible and terrifying. But sometimes that crisis is exactly what we needed to get us right with God, to get us back on track with God. This was a traumatic experience for Jonah, don't you think? This was like... Uh, you know, up there on the scale of 1 to 10, about a 42. You know, this is, this is a big deal. And yet, this fish was not sent to kill him, but to save him. Looked like death when he first showed up, but it was saving Jonah's life and his relationship with God. Jonah knew that the wages, the disobedience of sin, uh, means death. You know, the, the Bible says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. He knew this. He knew that when you disobey God, you deserve punishment. 
And when he's cast into the raging sea, I think he expected to die and then to meet God. And God say, okay, you disobeyed me. I'll get somebody else to go to the Ninevites. And yet he finds himself still alive inside this fish. What was this great fish? Maybe something unique, maybe a killer whale, maybe something even larger like a sperm whale or a blue whale. Maybe you've seen that big whale that they've got down at the Smithsonian. You know, it stretches from one end of the room to the other, and you see, man, this is, this is a big thing. In fact, sperm whales are the hugest mammal on earth. They have a mouth that is 20 feet long, 15 feet wide, and nine, or 15 feet high, 9 feet wide. That, that's like a, a big room in your house. That's just the mouth of this animal. And so they could obviously swallow somebody Jonah's size. They have found these sperm whales, you know, with a full-size squid still in its stomach. You know, never, never even chewed up. It's still right there. Could a man survive in a whale's stomach? Yes, and a few actually have. Uh, one case uh, that was documented, the Star of the East ship in February 1891, it spotted this large sperm whale, and they went after it, and they, they were trying to hunt it. Two boats were launched shortly uh, a harpooner was able to get a harpoon and a harpoon and one, and they attempted to get another one, but the 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 boat was overturned by the whale. One guy drowned, the other guy disappeared. Well, the next day they went back and they got the same whale. This time they were able to kill it. They drew up alongside their ship. They started cutting the blubber off of it. Second day after that, they got its stomach out and they hoisted the stomach up onto the deck of the ship, and inside it was the sailor that was missing. His name was James Bartley, and he was assumed drowned, but no, he was still alive. Somehow he found enough air to breathe in there, and like the second, third day after they, they first captured and killed this whale, he comes out alive, and he went back to work. Same job. Now, if I were you, him, I wouldn't go back. I'd find a job on land. <laughs> wouldn't you? James Bartley went back and started hunting whales again. I guess he wanted to get even or something. I don't know. Would there be air to breathe in a whale like that? Yes, but it would be very difficult to breathe. You could. Would there be heat? Yes, about 108 degrees. Uh, there would also be the constant unpleasant contact with the animal's gastric juices. Oh, that sounds a little horrible. They came out looking a little pale, don't you think, James? Aren't you a little pale now? Skin looks a little funny. Besides that, it would be pitch black in there. It would smell horrible. And this animal, this whale, would be going up and down through the sea. It would be like a constant roller coaster ride inside there. And I imagine for three days now, Jonah is trembling with fear as he's sliding back and forth with every dive the fish made. Regardless whether this was a special fish God created or a whale, it was a miracle that Jonah survived. And God was giving him time to think, wasn't he? Time to think about what he was doing. God saved him from death in order to give him a chance to repent. Jonah's words acknowledge this. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. He answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. And you brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. So sometimes a crisis is exactly what we need. Sometimes God has to give this wake-up call to us. God has to, to you know, strike us with, with something pretty heavy, pretty significant. And it's not the time then to bemoan your crises. It's not the time to, oh, it's me, what terrible thing has happened to me, as terrible as it might be. Because it can be the very tool that God uses 
to get us back on track with him. Abraham Lincoln once said, he says, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. And we know what he went through, especially during the years of the Civil War. Tony Evans said something that just really struck me. He says, sometimes, sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so that you can discover he's the rock at the bottom. <laughs> sometimes he lets you hit rock bottom so you discover that God is the rock foundation, the, the thing in which your life needs to be built when you get there. Now, I'm sorry if today you're experiencing trouble. I'm not trying to make little of that, not trying to you know, make you feel like your troubles are not significant. They may be very significant, maybe more significant than anything I've ever faced. But think about this. Perhaps this is the perfect time for God to get your attention. Second thing, God can hear our prayers anywhere, anytime. We cannot run so far away from God that God can't hear our prayers. We learned that last Sunday. God is everywhere. We can't hide from him. He sees everything. He hears everything. We can run and run and run, but we'll never outrun him. My second cousin, Charlie Campbell, my cousin Bill's cousin, uh, was a uh, Navy pilot in uh, Vietnam. And he flew many missions over North Vietnam, 40-some missions. So he came back. He was safe from that. He came back, but he was used to speed. You know, those are really fast planes that they were flying so he went out and he bought himself a Corvette, brand new Corvette, the fastest thing you could find on the road at the time. And one day he's tooling through St. Petersburg, Florida, and uh, he's speeding, of course, like he always did, and a policeman starts up the siren, you know, and the lights, and starts chasing him. He decides, I'm just going to outrun this guy because I can outrun him. So he outruns him. Pretty soon a second patrol car comes up. He outruns both of them, but eventually five of them cornered him in a neighborhood in St. Pete because he could outrun their cars, but he couldn't outrun the radios. <laughs> and they caught him. And this is what Jonah is feeling. I tried to run away from God. My idea was to go all the way over to Spain, and I couldn't get there. And here I am now in the belly of this whale, this fish, the most terrible deep, dark, terrifying place I've ever been, and God's here. I tried to run from God, and God is here. God is able to hear us, no matter where we may be. He can hear any of us anytime, anywhere. He can hear all seven billion of us at the same time. Isn't that astounding? We can't even imagine that kind of building. Do you remember the movie with Jim Carrey, Bruce Almighty? When he gets a chance to play God for a while, you know? And all of a sudden, he's getting all these messages from the prayers, and it's just staggering how many you know messages are coming at once. There's no way he could handle that. This is this is God's ability. It's an amazing ability. So it doesn't matter what else is going on. It doesn't matter you know everything going on in the world. God can still hear the quiet little prayer of his child, or maybe the nearly inaudible whispered prayer of someone about ready to die. You know, God hears it all. God sees it all. And be assured that God can hear you wherever you are. Don't ever feel like God is just ignoring you or, or God is, God is uh, you know, unable to hear your cry for help. You can't be out of range, so you shouldn't be out of touch. God can hear your prayers anywhere, anytime. But please note this. this. This is a very critical thing, number three. If we have sinned, we must turn from our sins. Because the prayer that God hears is not the, the prayer of someone who's just going to go ahead and do whatever they want to do and not listening to God. 
If we want God to answer our prayers, then we need to repent and be truly repentant of any sins. We must turn from our sins. What God demands in prayer is what the Bible calls a broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite spirit. That's what David said in Psalm 51. After he had sinned with Bathsheba and caused problems for himself and for his nation, he said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so David confessed his sins and promised to live in obedience to God from that day on. And God forgave David's sins and continued to use him to great effect. So our repentance must be real. It can't be faked. <laughs> Remember, we're talking about God here. He knows. You might fool your spouse. You might fool your friend. You might fool your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your child. But you can't fool God. Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow just brings death. Worldly sorrow, I think, is, is just feeling sorry that you got caught. Man, I'm sorry. You're not sorry for what you did. You're sorry that you got caught doing it. And now there's punishment to be paid or some ramification to it. Godly sorrow says, I am sorry, God, for what I've done to you, what I've done in disobeying you, in running from you, ignoring you. And godly sorrow gets us going in the right direction again. It is proven by our action. It is shown by what we do next. After we pray the prayer of, sorry I did that, God, what do you do next? Because godly sorrow will mean we will do something that God's going to be pleased with. Now think think of a husband and wife riding in their car. You know, and she's playing navigator, he's driving, and uh, they're going somewhere that they've never been before, but she's following a map, or she's, she's uh, got everything spelled out here where she went through MapQuest or something. And she tells her husband, this next place, turn right. They get up to that intersection and he turns left. And when he realizes what he's done, he says to his wife, I'm sorry, love, I went the wrong way. <laughs> you wives know men will never do that. <laughs> you know no man is ever going to admit he's wrong when he's driving. But let's just play with the illustration for a minute. Just follow along and pretend that I, this is an actual case. He's supposed to turn right, and he turns left. And he says, sorry, love, I turned the wrong direction. I want you to know something. If that is all he does, it's not enough. If he even admits that he's wrong, it's not enough. His saying sorry isn't getting them any closer to where they need to be. It isn't even stopping them from getting further away. So to get where they need to be, he needs to stop the car and turn it around and go what would have been a right turn instead of a left turn at that intersection. That is repentance. That is the picture of what it means to say to God, I am sorry for what I've done, and I'm going to turn around and go where you wanted me to go. Do what you wanted me to do in the first place. That's the picture of repentance. It's also the sign of a good husband. <laughs> that he could actually do that and admit his mistake and change his direction. Chuck Swindoll recalls the story of an airliner, a true story. 1968 is bound for New York, and the plane had just begun its descent when the pilot realized that the landing gear wasn't going down. He worked the controls back and forth. He tried several times to engage those landing gears that wouldn't go down. And finally, there was uh, just, uh, yeah, admit, got a problem here. He called the control tower. He said, we got problems. We're going to have trouble 
we're going to just circle the field a few times to prepare for us because we're going to have to make a landing. We're just going to have to slide in there on the belly of this airplane. So they sent out emergency vehicles, vehicles, and they sprayed the runway with foam as fire trucks, and everybody lined up for this inevitable crash. Disaster is only minutes away. And these these people that run an airplane, you know, they have this ability to be very calm. In a situation. I think it's their training. So his voice comes over saying that they do have problems. They're going to have to slide into the runway and not have landing gear down, but it'll be okay. His cheery voice just kind of managed everybody. The flight attendants are walking through, you know, like nothing big is going on and telling everybody, you know, just uh, when it comes time for us to land, you're going to put your head between your knees, you're going to grab your ankles just before impact, and they have this kind of cool reserve about them. And everybody's thinking, I can't believe I'm in this situation. We're all about ready to die here. And they're just a few seconds away from hitting that runway, and the announcer, the pilot, comes through one more time over the intercom, and he says this. This is what he actually said. We're beginning our final descent. At this moment, in accordance with the International Aviation Codes established in Geneva, it is my obligation to inform you that if you believe in God, you should commence prayer. <laughs> Very calm voice. A few seconds away from hitting. And if you believe, now is the time to pray. That's a prayer of desperation if there ever was one. And thankfully that plane landed without any loss of life. Somehow they skidded to a halt, you know, and everybody got off the plane safely. God can hear our prayers anytime, anywhere, and he can answer them just as fast, but they must be genuine prayers. They must be prayers from a broken and contrite heart. The fourth thing we can learn from Jonah is this, is this uh, very important thing. If we're in the place of desperation, if we're in the place where we're struggling to get it right and we're being confronted by the crisis, what we must do is accept God's discipline with humility. And then we can grow. When Jonah had nowhere else to turn, he finally cried out to God for help, and he got his heart right with God. John Hamby said at first, Jonah probably thought he was going to die. But after a little while, he said, hey, wait a minute, I'm not dead. <laughs> I think may, God may be up to something here. There's enough air to breathe. The heat isn't as intolerable as I thought it was first. I'm going to make it, and this fish isn't the sign of my destruction. It is the means of my deliverance. Thank you, Lord. R.T. Kendall noted how Jonah learned from God's discipline. He said, the belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it's a good place to learn. <laughs> and Jonah had a lot to learn. C.S. Lewis called pain God's megaphone, didn't he? He said, this is how God gets our attention. This is how God wakes us up to what is really going on. And I wonder this morning if God is wanting, wanting somehow to get your attention. And maybe some of the troubles you've gone through in this life, maybe what you're going through right now, is God simply saying, are you turning toward me or away from me? Are you listening to me? Or are you decided that you're going to run as fast as you can in the opposite direction? God still uses crises and hardships to teach us some of the best lessons we can learn. But it takes humility for us to learn them. J. Vernon McGee tells the story of a young man who, like Jonah, was running from God. God was obviously after him, trying to get him to become a, a believer, a follower of Christ. His parents had made him attend a revival meeting at his home church. He went two nights in succession. He knew that if he went another time, he would not only accept Christ as his Savior, 
but it may end up with him entering the ministry, entering a preaching, a teaching ministry of some kind, just like God was moving him, and he's resisting. So that night after everyone else went to bed, he got an extra shirt in his pajamas, and he ran off to Mississippi. <laughs> I'm just getting out of here. He's kind of like Jonah. Run the other way. And he ended up getting a job at a sawmill. One afternoon after he'd worked there for only about two weeks, he caught his index finger in his right hand in one of the logs, and he felt himself being pulled along the carriage toward this big bandsaw at the other end of this run. Huge saw. He began to yell at the top of his voice, but nobody could hear him. The saw was too loud. And by that time, the other end of the log had hit the saw and was really starting to buzz through there quickly, and he's being pulled into it. He's yelling and yelling, very frightened that he, he would find himself pulled against his will right through that saw. And he knew it would take less than a minute for him to get there. And in that brief time, that one minute, he prayed to the Lord. He asked Jesus to be his Savior. He promised the Lord that he would go into the ministry if God would only save him, that he would do whatever he wanted him to do if he would just save his life. Can you imagine what he prayed in that 60 seconds of time? And somehow God stopped that saw and saved that young man's life. And he kept his promise to not only be a Christian, but become a preacher. McGee said, my friend used to say that he told the Lord a lot more in that one minute than he ever told him in an hour's prayer since then. <laughs> Imagine your mind is just whoosh, racing through that. I'm in desperate times here. And in prayer to God, Jonah rededicated his life. It was a desperate prayer, but it was an honest prayer. It was a prayer said in crisis, but Jonah had every intention of making good on whatever he said to God. Every promise he made, he kept that promise. And as soon as he got out, as soon as the fish vomited up on dry ground, he didn't head towards Spain anymore. He headed toward Nineveh. And he went straight to Nineveh and he preached for several days, preaching repentance to people that he had hated his whole life. Because this was God's will and God had impressed it upon him and he was going to keep his promise that he made in that prayer of desperation. No matter how far you get away from God, there's always a way back. But the way back may not be beautiful. It may not be this scenic trip. It may not be what Jonah left on you. Know, I'm going to go on a cruise to Spain. You might end up in the belly of a whale. And so God got his attention. And he made a promise he kept. We must never delude ourselves into thinking that we can walk away from God without cost. But there is hope in knowing that no matter how much we mess up, no matter how far away we go, there's always a way back. And God pursues us, as we said last week, to get us to come home. And I believe that Jonah was a changed man after his experience in the deep. His disobedience cost him his pride, his self-centeredness. He had humbled himself before God, and now he's willing to do whatever God wanted him to do. So here's the bottom line for this morning. Where are you? Where am I? Where, where are we before God? Is there anything we need to confess? Because prayers are like pointless. They're just bouncing off the ceiling until we get that right with God. God doesn't promise he's going to listen to every sinner's prayer if they haven't begun with repentance, if they haven't begun with acknowledgement of their sin, He will hear your prayer, but He wants your heart to be right. You can't just keep living the way you want to live and expect God to come through with you for you every time. 
You can't keep sinning against God and expect Him to still answer your prayers in a favorable way. Is there anything you need to repent of, not only with your words, but also with your actions? Because remember, Paul said, godly sorrow leads to repentance and a changed life. What do you need to do this morning? When Jonah was thrown out on that beach, he was determined that he was going to follow God, that he was going to do whatever God told him to do. What do you need to be determined to do when we leave here this morning? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the uh, word that you've given us, the story of Jonah. I thank you for the lessons we can learn, so many uh, different things we can see here. But impress upon us today, Lord, that there must be this sincere, genuine prayer from a contrite heart, from a heart that is broken before you. We ask for your blessing upon this time of decision, whether a public decision, whether somebody steps up or not, or whether it's very private between you and them. Speak to us individually, Lord. Help us to hear your voice as you hold us accountable and as you strive to impress upon us the lessons we need to learn. Maybe it's time of crisis. Maybe it's a time of desperation for someone here today. Speak to them now that you have their attention. Now that they're listening. Bless us, Lord, as we obey you, as we follow you, as we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you join us now as, as we sing together, continue uh, time of decision. Please stand as we sing. Mm -hmm.